0: Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so pleased to have with us today one of the nation's most iconic figures in the field of political commentary, the legendary George Will. As we at St. John's know very well, Mr. Will has written a twice-weekly column on politics and domestic and foreign affairs for the Washington Post since 1974. In 1977, he received the Pulitzer Prize for Commentary is the author of many books, the most recent being The Conservative Sensibility, others include The Pleasures and Provocations of Our Singular Nation, and Men at Work, The Craft of Baseball, an ode to the game he so loves. He is a regular contributor to NBC and to MSNBC, and he's a graduate of Trinity College, Magdalen College at Oxford University, and Princeton University. Mr. Will will speak to us this morning on the topic of the function of conservatives, what they exist to conserve and what only they can do. With that, please join me in welcoming George Will.
1: Thank you very much. Forgive my informality. I'm speaking to you from Kewa Island, South Carolina. Uh, You mentioned uh, baseball. I was up late last night, helping the nationals lose, I'm afraid. Uh, I've published uh, 15 books now, one of which, the one on Men at Work, The Craft of Baseball, sold more than the other 14 combined, which I take to be a sign of national health. Uh, This morning, I wanna talk to you about what conservatism wants to conserve and what it is that only conservatives really can do in our current political situation. What American conservatives want to conserve is very simple, the American founding, which consists basically of three great propositions. One of which is that there is such a thing as a fixed human nature, that we are not simply creatures that take on the coloration and the impress of whatever culture we happen to be situated in. Second is that from this fixed human nature, we can divine natural rights. That is what rights are essential to the flourishing of people with this kind of nature. Notice leaves lots of room for argument about what flourishing constitutes and what rights contribute to that, but if you don't like to argue you pick the wrong country because Americans argue about fundamentals all the time. The third component of the American conservative catechism, if you will, is that we need a government that reflects the, the fact that first come rights and then comes government. We do not get our rights from the government. Uh, therefore, we need a, a government in Madison's formulation uh, strong enough to protect our rights, but not so strong to threaten them. Hence the structure of our government, complicated, but an attempt to mitigate democracy. Uh, I often think that the most overlooked word in the Declaration of Independence is secure. All men are created equal, done by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And to secure those rights, governments are instituted, emphasizing, as I say, that first come rights and then comes government. What I've really described is that we, are, we conservatives are rule utilitarians as a rule, judging from history. Uh, certain rights are conducive to human flourishing. So we, we I think we have to say we're unapologetic rule utilitarians. The progressive uh, rebellion against the founders has been going on for 125 years and has been, I'm bound to say, ruefully, remarkably successful. Uh, progressives tend to say, beginning with John Dewey and Herbert Crowley and, his 1910 book, The Promise of American Life. It's one of the very few, perhaps the only book book published in 1910, still in print, never been out of print since then. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt took it in his saddlebags on one of his safaris, it was given to him by Brandeis. It's the great uh, founding document as it were of American progressivism. And progressives say, first of all, that uh, we are indeed mostly, products of the culture in which we're situated, the culture that leaves an impress upon us, that rights are spaces that the government carves out for us, spaces of autonomy that endure uh, as long as they have majoritarian support. And third, uh, that uh, Thomas Woodrow Wilson, uh, Tommy as he was known at Princeton when he was there, Woodrow when he was president there, Uh, Woodrow Wilson is the iconic figure, I think, of of American progressivism because he was the first president of the United States to criticize the American founding, which he did not do peripherally. He did root and branch. He said the the whole structure of government was all right once upon a time when there were only 4 million of us, uh, 80% of us living within 20 miles of Atlantic tidewater, but Now, he said, and this to me is the great conservative non sequitur, now that we are a vast continental nation, united by steel rails and copper wires, now that we are so complex, we need a government of similar complexity and energy. Uh, I think, in fact, what most conservatives say is the more complex society becomes, the more there is to know, the more there is the government will not know. And therefore, it should rely on the spontaneous order of a, of a market society, free individuals, uh, freely associating, as Tocqueville marvelled at, free individuals uh, uh, making their own decisions. Uh, and that, as, as I say, government then succumbs to, we're bound to say, the, the, the fatal conceit that it can know more than it actually can and that it can Uh, control more than it actually can. Markets, after all, are only information generating devices and left free, we get lots of information and should act accordingly. Obviously what I'm describing is an American conservatism that is very different from European conservatism, which was born in Europe in reaction to turmoil and was born in particularly reaction to the French Revolution, which gave us Edmund Burke's great reflections thereon. And conservatism in Europe was about throne an altar, somewhat blood and soil, I'm afraid, and generally in defense of stability and hierarchy. When uh, we have now in conservatism in the United States, we are recognizably the legatees of classical liberalism, minimal government, natural rights, rule of law, free trade, et cetera. It's far too late in the game for us to sort out the terminological confusion in the United States wherein conservatives are actually classical liberals in the Locke, John Stuart Mill, Lord Acton uh, uh, strain. Uh, But far uh, far from valuing hierarchy and stasis, if you will, American conservatives relish churning, they relish the frictions and uncertainties and open future and potential for upward mobility of a, of a fluid capitalist market society. It has been said that the story of the Bible reduced to one sentence is that God created men and women and promptly lost control of events. Uh, conservatives like that. We like events not being particularly controlled. Uh, so it seems to me the danger in the, pop, in the progressive uh, approach to politics is that it is constantly susceptible to the populist temptation. Populism being the belief that people, uh, the public is a homogenous group, that public desires should be heard by a strong executive and translated as directly and quickly as possible into public policy. Uh, James Madison, uh, the hero of, uh, he is the wallpaper on my smartphone. Uh, uh, I was a graduate student at Princeton. He was the first graduate student at Princeton. Madison said, no, that's exactly wrong. What we want is a, a certain measured slowness in our politics. After all, when the founders went to Philadelphia in the sweltering summer of 1787, they did not go to devise an efficient government. The idea was horrified. They wanted a safe government to which end, they developed one of some complexity, three branches of government, two branches, two houses of the legislative branch, each with its own electoral rhythms and constituencies, vetoes, veto overrides, judicial review, super majorities, all kinds of ways to slow things down. People say, well, gosh, it makes it hard to pass laws. Yes, it's supposed to be hard because you don't want impetuosity in government. You want mitigated democracy. You want institutions to refine and slow the uh, emergence of public opinion. The founders were committed Democrats. And people say, well, gee, the founders wrote so much about the problems of democracy. They did, but they only wrote about the problems of democracy because they were determined to have a democracy, which indeed they bequeathed us. Uh, what, we have, what we have seen is in, in our time, the disruption of the Madisonian model by the emergence of the modern presidency. Uh, abetted by theory, it began with uh, Theodore Roosevelt and his theory of the stewardship president. And he said, president, is free to do anything he is not explicitly forbidden to do by the Constitution. Uh, Woodrow Wilson came along with the theory of executive leadership that the president was to interpret the mood of the country and to translate it uh, as, as much as possible directly into action. And this is why he was such a firm, uh, unyielding critic of the separation of powers. He said, it slows things down and we need a government that acts with tremendous dispatch. Uh, Then uh, the third great figure of American progressivism was the man who first came to Washington as Woodrow Wilson's Assistant Secretary of the Navy, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who took the modern technology of radio which in its day was more disruptive, more astonishing to people, and more of political consequence than our, our much wanted internet has yet to be or probably ever will be. Little known fact, when he sat down, uh, Roosevelt did for his first fireside chat. The first two words he spoke, uh, they do not appear in the text of the paper up at Hyde Park at the Presidential Library, but the first two words Roosevelt spoke were my friends. Now, try to imagine George Washington addressing a group of Americans as my friends. Somewhere along the line, the American people decided they want presidents to be their friends. Now we have, of course, television brings them into our homes uh, every day. Uh, They are ubiquitous. Uh, We have this close personal relationship with presidents. I'll leave it to you to decide whether that is entirely healthy or indeed whether that is entirely adult. I tend to doubt it. Uh, What conservatives uh, can do today that I think only conservatives can do is Puncture the sentimental view of government as a somewhat disinterested uh, entity, rather than uh, a an entity with its own interests and b a plaything of interests. Uh, since I'm talking to a Washington audience, we I, I would say that I think if Senator Elizabeth Warren has a firm grip on half a point. She says there's something uh, disagreeable and. Alarming about the fact that five of the ten wealthiest American counties in per capita income color in the Washington area. We have no natural resources. We don't manufacture anything but laws and regulations and trouble occasionally. Uh, but what we do is we we filter trillions of dollars a year, come sloshing through Washington in one way or another. And as the government has become more interventionist. And indeed, permeating American life with its decisions largely through executive agencies, the Congress having yielded much of its power to uh, the executive, cheerfully yielded it because it sh- they shed power and they shed responsibility simultaneously. Uh, a- a- as a result, uh, in my judgment, the part of, of this that Elizabeth Warren and other progressive advocates of interventionist government miss is that. Uh, Government inevitably becomes an engine for redistributing wealth upward. Uh, The gears and pulleys and levers of this enormous opaque machine of the administrative state uh, rewards those who can pierce the veil, if you will. It becomes the plaything of intense factions that are articulate, confident, affluent, and well-lawyered and they know how to make the machinery work for them as it distributes benefits. One thing that uh, I think essentially one of the most interesting arguments today is not between the left and the right, it's within the right. Uh, American conservatives for many years uh, invade against judicial activism and praise judicial uh, restraint. I, however, and some other conservatives uh, favor judicial energy, judicial engagement, if you will. We believe that judicial supervision of democracy is tremendously important because majorities, when they rule, can make mistakes and that uh, they can be uh, tyrannical toward minorities. Uh, I I think it's fair to say that uh, the, the fundamental question of American life that really divides conservatives and progressives is, is America about a process majority rule, or is America about a condition, liberty? Uh, if you believe, as conservatives do, that it is liberty and not majority rule. But then you go back to, to me, the great episode of American conservatism. Uh, I speak as someone who grew up in Central Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. My father taught at the University of Illinois taught philosophy. According to local lore, it was in, the Champaign County Courthouse in 1854 that Abraham Lincoln then a prosperous, frequently traveling railroad lawyer uh, learned that the Illinois Senator Stephen A. Douglas had succeeded in passing in Washington, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Kansas-Nebraska Act said, here's how we're gonna solve the vexing problem of the status of slavery in the territories, such as Kansas and Nebraska. We're gonna vote on it popular sovereignty in the territory, majority rule. Voted up, voted down, said, uh, Stephen A. Dodd is a matter of indifference to me. What is not a matter of indifference to me is that majority should rule. Uh, Lincoln recoiled against this and his recoil was what propelled him to greatness. He said, no, uh, we do not vote on everything. We, uh, there are limits to what majorities can and should do. Indeed, a written constitution is a catalog of things government cannot do. Uh, Judicial review is sometimes said uh, to face the counter-majoritarian difficulty. Difficulty presumably being that uh, judicial review can strike down laws passed by majoritarian institutions, legislatures. I think it's not a, a difficulty at all. That's why you have a written constitution. The First Amendment to ours says, Congress shall make no law. Doesn't matter if majorities want it, can't have it. Establishing religion, uh, abridging freedom of speech in the press or the right to assembly to petition for redress agreements, can't do it. Now, my doctoral dissertation at Princeton was called Beyond the Reach of Majorities. It was uh, from uh, Justice Jackson, great, Judge in the United States. He was our representative, our chief judge at the Nuremberg war trial. He was an attorney general under Roosevelt. But this was a flag salute case. And the first flag salute case, they, the Supreme Court held in 1939 that it was all right to compel Jehovah's Witnesses' children in Pennsylvania to salute the flag, even though it violated their conscience, because it served national unity and. The opinion that was written by a Jewish refugee named Felix Frankfurter, a refugee from Austria, and we were on the edge of war and national unity was important. But just four years later, the Supreme Court in West Virginia v. Barnett struck down the mandatory flag salute law, saying the very purpose of a Bill of Rights is to place certain things beyond the reach of majorities safe from the vicissitudes of politics. Uh, This is is to me as a a Lincolnian, as a son of central Illinois, uh, the important matter for conservatism. many years ago in 1981, I gave the Godkin Lectures at Harvard that became a book read by dozens called Statecraft as Soulcraft. My subtitle was What Government Does. Not what government should do, but what government does, what cannot help but do. What government cannot help but do is to have an effect on the souls, the characters, the shape of the citizenry. Uh, One thing that conservatism teaches in the United States is that capitalism does not just make us better off, which it manifestly does, having produced since the late 18th century and first in Holland and then in in Britain, having produced uh, the great enrichment that has lifted literally billions of people out of subsistence poverty into something like middle-class life. But capitalism does just make us better off, it makes us better. It makes us better by Enforcing a kind of sociability in the spontaneous order of a cooperative contracting society. Enforcing a kind of politeness. First thing you hear when you walk into an American shop is how may I help you? It's it's, it's a, a civilizing force. There's an episode in de Tocqueville's magisterial Democracy in America, well called the greatest book ever written about one country by a citizen of another. De Tocqueville in his visit to Jacksonian America is floating down the Ohio River with slaveholding Kentucky on his left and free soil Ohio on his right. Uh, he is struck, De Tocqueville was, by the torpor, some lack of energy, in slaveholding Kentucky where free labor was looked down upon as somehow demeaning as opposed to the crackling energy of the great state of Ohio on his right where free people and free soil worked. What conservatives stress about capitalism and respect for markets is epistemic humility. Epistemology is the field of philosophy that deals with how we know things theory of knowledge. Epistemic humanity says there's so little that we can know individually. But markets generating information, billions of decisions a day by hundreds of billions of Americans, uh, produces information that we can uh, uh, act on individually, and that governments cannot. My favorite example of, uh, uh, of sort of government uh, up against the limits of its ability to know comes from the post-war labor government elected in 1945, uh, turned Churchill out of office even when he was at the Potsdam Conference, and a a, a very distinguished member of the post-war antley government, Anurian Bevan, a Welsh uh, firebrand, uh, said The United Kingdom is made of coal and surrounded by fish. It would take an organizing genius to produce a shortage of either. Well, two years later, socialism had produced a shortage of both Uh, because again, government's just, there are limits to its ability to handle things. And once government decides that it's going to run the economy, it inevitably succumbs to crony capitalism. inevitably becomes a defender of the existing economic entities. Uh, And uh, the the result is a kind of sluggishness and the defense of the status quo. Uh, Conservatives are comfortable with inequality. If you say you're for liberty, you are for inequality. People have different attitudes and aptitudes. Some people wanna teach kindergarten. Some people wanna run hedge funds, bless them all but there are going to be different social rewards and that is just part of life. Now, I think conservatives speak to a sense about inequality. They note that 200 years ago, the great source of wealth in the United States was land. We had so much of it, we were giving it away. 125 years ago, turn of the 19th century, the 20th century, the great source of wealth was heavy Fixed capital, think of Andrew Carnegie's steel mills or Cornelius Vanderbilt's New York Central Railroad. Today, and this is a problem, the great source of wealth is mind, information, human capital as we call it. Uh, And as a result, we have an increasingly cognitively stratified society with great rewards going to those uh, who have, uh, among other things, family advantages, there's no question of that. Abundant social science research indicates the enormous importance of family uh, as the primary transmitter of social capital, by which I mean the habits, mores, customs, dispositions, values that enable people to thrive and prosper in a society of, of, of opportunity. However, I think we should also note that there are some inherently marvelously Uh, egalitarian aspects of modern life. One of the greatest, if not the greatest benefit of the uh, 20th century were antibiotics. Almost everyone in America has essentially the same access to antibiotics that Bill Gates has. Almost everyone has access to the uh, internet that uh, uh, Jeff Bezos has. A great, tremendous egalitarian uh, effect of modern developments. This I'm holding here, my, my smartphone. Um, my smartphone's as good as uh, my friend Warren Buffett's. In fact, it's better than Warren Buffett's. The last time I saw Warren, he still had a flip phone, which I suppose you can do if you uh, run Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, so I I, would, uh, I I would suggest that conservatism preaches realism to the American people. It has been said that the first law of economics is scarcity is real. There's not enough of everything to go around. First law of politics is to ignore the first law of economics. Pretend there's no scarcity. Now, we're living through a moment of such as that right now. You know, long ago, and uh, I came to Washington to work in the Senate after it got re- rearranged because of the death of Everett Dirksen, who was the until 1969, was the Senate uh, my, my, uh, leader of the Republicans. He once said, "A billion here, a billion there. Sooner or later, it adds up to real money." Now, of course, we say "A trillion here, a trillion there. It adds up to real money." Well, Americans uh, have to be. Someone has to take away the bowl at the uh, punch bowl at the at the party. Conservatives have to be the ones who say. There are costs and there are frictions. If you say liberty, you say inequality. Uh, If you say uh, uh, there are limits to what majorities should be allowed to do. It is the conservatives job, it seems to me, to uh, talk about these things. I am much more worried today for all the talk about discord and that Lord knows the discord in America is real enough these days. But I'm much more worried about a consensus. It's as broad as the Republic and deep as the Grand Canyon, and it extends from Elizabeth Warren to Ted Cruz, whether they admit it or not. And it is this, that we should have have a large, generous, omnipresent, omniprovident welfare state and not pay for it. Everyone's agreed on that last part. We're just not going to pay for it. We're going to fob off uh, a large share of the, the, the price of our, of our app, government appetites for goods and services on the unborn and hence, unconsenting future generations. Uh, Remember, there are only two ways to fund a government, present taxes and future taxes. Debt borrowing is taxation deferred. Uh, The political class in my experience of more than 50 years now in Washington The political class is more united by its class interest than it is divided by ideology. And its class interest is its permanent incentive under Republicans and Democrats alike to run large deficits. That is to give the American people a dollars worth of government, charge them 80 cents for it. The public is happy, the political class is therefore happy. And it is uh, a recipe over the long haul for ruin. Winston Churchill, who loved our country as much as he loved his American mother, once said that the American people invariably do the right thing after they have exhausted all the alternatives. Uh, Some of us on the right think that we're getting pretty far down the list of alternatives and it's time to have some sober talk from conservatives whose function in life is to be uh, the representatives of sobriety in the sometimes giddiness of democracy. On that, I think I've exhausted my time and probably some of my listeners and uh, I yield back to you.
0: That's terrific, Mr. Will, just riveting. Thank you so much. That's a great way to end and a great segue to the many questions that we have from our listeners. Let me start with the first one we have and that is, what do you think of the prospects of reconstituting the Republican party nowadays to its origins? Is it possible to do that now? Should it be done now? Can it be done now?
1: Well, one of the things we've learned in the last few years is that there are a lot fewer conservatives than is people like me than I thought and hoped. Uh, I'm an embattled minority, Uh, but I'm used to that. And uh, it could be that the Republican Party needs to be uh, clobbered again uh, before it learns the lesson. We're all familiar with the old story of the farmer who had a mule and he would, everyone's going to hit across the forehead with a two-by-four saying it's, it's, he yet to do that to get his attention. Uh, maybe the Republican Party's like that, but uh, we are a long way from being out of the swamp we have been in, not just as Republicans, but as Democrats as well, this this coarse, angry, volatile uh, argument. But uh, the Republican Party, whether it can be reconstituted as Lincolnian and Madisonian, uh, I've got my doubts, but I'm gonna go down with the flag flying.
0: Do you see people on the horizon who are capable of providing that way out of the wilderness?
1: I certainly do. I'm, I'm a great uh, fan of uh, of uh, uh, Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska, who uh, is a former university president. Uh, don't hold that against him, although it's... <laughs> uh, he's a Yale history PhD. Uh, he's uh, not mad at anyone, not angry. Uh, and uh, there are more like him out there. And uh, fr- from uh, little such little acorns, mighty oaks might grow. You never know.
0: What do you think of Mr. Biden so far?
1: Uh, I th- I think he's uh, lower the tone, which is good. I think he's overreaching, <laughs> which is bad. But uh, uh, the real hope of Political, never mind the intellectual revival of the Republican Party, the political revival of the Republican Party is apt to be a re- reaction against overreaching on the part of the Biden administration. Let me do a little bit of history. In 1964, I cast my first vote for president cheerfully for Barry Goldwater. He lost 44 states. And people said, well, that's the end of that. The Republicans are not going to win anything in the future. Well, they won five of the next six, as I recall, presidential elections. In 19, because of the anti-Goldwater landslide, Lyndon Johnson suddenly had a Congress in which he could do anything he wanted, and he wanted to do everything all at once. And they did that, 65 and 66. There was a huge Republican gain in 66. Nixon won in 74. I mean, in uh, 68, he won again in 72. Carter wins in 76. Reagan wins in 80, 84. George Walker, the Republican Party came back in part in reaction against overreaching on the part of the Democrats. And I think uh, Democrats with uh, the uh, promiscuous spending and the uh, the desire to regulate hither and yon are apt to produce a, a... and economic difficulties that will come back to bite them. That said, I think post-pandemic, when we all get shots in our arm, we're going to have such pent-up demand for cheeseburgers and airplane tickets. The country is going to, I expect, and I mean this, 6% growth in uh, uh, the next, say, 12 months starting now. So. Uh, that can overcome a lot of overreaching on the part of the Democrats.
0: As you might imagine, there are lots of questions about President Trump. So let me start with one. How much damage do you think the Trump presidency did to our democracy, both domestically and internationally?
1: Uh, Lots. Uh, uh, I'm going to say this about Trump and then go silent. Uh, Long time ago, so I'm done talking about that man. He's, in my judgment, He's done the impossible. He displaced Andrew Johnson as the worst president in the United States. Uh, He has uh, coarsened American uh, civic discourse. He has uh, sown a pandemic of cynicism about our institutions and uh, it's going to take a long time to recover. And that's the end of my talk about Donald Trump.
0: Can you talk a little bit about Fox News and the impact it's had on politics over the course of the last 25 years or so?
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I, you're talking to, I think, maybe the only person who's worked for both MSNBC and Fox. Uh, and I can tell you they're much more alike than they are different. That is, they have decided to uh, serve the great American pandemic of confirmation bias. That is, everyone choosing to live in their intellectual silos where they're particularly comfortable, exposing themselves only to information and advocacy that confirms what they already believe. Uh, they therefore spend their time uh, offering up uh, ideological red meat to true believers. Uh, I think it's unfortunate, but I think it's of minimal importance for the following reasons. There 330 million people in our country. At any given time, about 323 million of them are not watching cable television, not listening to talk radio. They're fixing the screen door, washing the car, raising children, and getting on with life. And they're not obsessed with politics. Again, another sign of national health. Uh, Fox News is a little different than MSNBC because Fox News speaks directly to Uh, the Republican nominating electorate, the Republican base, the activists who really care and who are disproportionately important in the candidate selection process. The disproportionately important Democrats are well to the left of the American public. The disproportionately important and consequential Republicans are well to the right of the American, which is why we often get candidates who are um, unsatisfying to the middle. It used to be said that American politics uh, takes place between the 40-yard lines, that uh, it's a a fairly centrist operation. And until we get back to that, we're not gonna be anything like content.
0: Question about the uh, Republican orientation nowadays to a working class orientation. What do you make of that?
1: Well, uh, a large number of Americans feel that the dynamism of American life, the dynamism of a globalized economy, has casualties and that they are the casualties. Now, they're half right, uh, they're three quarters right. Yes, it does have casualties. Creative destruction is creative, to use the phrase of the great economist, Joseph uh, Schumpeter. Creative destruction of capitalism is creative, but it is destruction and it has casualties and public policy must try to smooth that out and help those who are the casualties. But beyond the material injury felt by some many working class Americans that has turned them and made them susceptible to Donald Trump and others, there's also the the status anxieties, the feeling on the part of, the majority of Americans who have not gone to college, it's important for uh, the audience of this church on uh, Sunday morning to remember, most Americans do not go to college. Uh, They have the feeling that they, they are not only losing materially, but they are the objects of condescension. That American society has become an organized disparagement of their worth. And uh, it's important that much to be done to restore the the sense of dignity of of labor. And if the Republicans can do that, and this may have something to do with why, the Democrats are quite alarmed by the inroads made among, say, Hispanic and Asian Americans and others. It will be because the Republican Party finds a way to suggest that. those uh, that they are not, to not quite coin a phrase, a basket of deplorables.
0: Turning to foreign affairs, one of the areas, one of the few areas of consensus between the parties nowadays seems to be the need to really take on China, uh, to really contest their efforts to achieve political and economic and military primacy around the world. What is your sense of whether America is capable of doing that now, given the political divisions?
1: I think we are. I think uh, this would not be the first time that a nation has been united by a foreign adversary. Before the Trump administration on its last day declared the Chinese government guilty of genocide in its treatment of the Uyghurs, candidate Biden in August 2020 said the same thing. So there is uniform understanding that something pretty hideous is going on in China, that it is a Leninist regime devoted above all else to controlling people in order to uh, preserve itself. It is using the digital technologies for very sinister purposes. Uh, of social control far beyond what any prior totalitarianism could have managed because it didn't have the technology to manage it. Uh, I think much the most dangerous place in the world is the 100 or so miles across the Taiwan Straits. If uh, President Xi decides that his legacy requires uh, bringing the renegade province of Taiwan as they like to call that vibrant democracy of 24 million people, uh, under Beijing's control, then we could have a serious war. And um, we, one of the first challenges of the Biden administration is to decide whether the 50 years now of strategic ambiguity regarding the United States commitment to Taiwan is now perhaps too dangerous. Lord Curzon, a great British diplomat once said, the secret in diplomacy is to know your own mind and make sure the other fellow knows it too. And maybe we have to find a way to convince the Chinese that we know our mind and that we will not, our mind will not tolerate uh, the extinction of Taiwan's democracy.
0: Two quick concluding questions. One is we know what your position is on whether the filibuster should be preserved given your, your orientation, but if you could put on your prognosticator hat, what do you think of the prospects for um, changing the filibuster?
1: Uh, I think the filibuster will not be changed because the Democrats A, do not have the votes. Uh, the third branch, fourth branch of government is the senator from West Virginia, Mr. Mention, and the, the junior senator from Arizona. Uh, maybe she's senior now, Kiederman. Uh I don't think the Democrats have the votes. There are lots of Democrats who haven't said they're opposed to abolishing, but they are, Bernie Sanders, for example. Uh, so I think the filibuster says, Democrats are going to find ways to work around it. Uh, and the filibuster might save them from making the mistake that Jefferson warned against. He said, do not undertake great measures on slender majorities.
0: Uh,
1: they'd be well to advise to heed him.
0: And a final question, of course, on baseball. So yeah. please comment on the current controversies surrounding the uh, Major League Baseball and wading into uh, the voting rights controversies.
1: Well, uh, frankly, I, I warned the commissioner of two things. I said, if you move the Game, you're going to move it to a state has some voting laws that are more restrictive than those in the new Georgia law and bingo they did it the first try they got to Colorado and Colorado has some laws that are less liberal if you will than Georgia's new law second is that what you what the danger is that now major league baseball becomes every summer a hostage next summer they're supposed to play the all-star game in Los Angeles I guarantee you There are five, 10, dozens of activist groups are going to say, no, Major League Baseball shouldn't come here unless California enacts this or repeals that. So once you, you know, it's a pastime. We go to games to get away from politics and it would be nice to uh, leave it that way.
0: (laughs) Terrific. Mr. Well, we cannot thank you enough for joining us. What a wonderful, riveting talk this was and we're very much in your debt.
1: I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks again.